What's going on, mi gente? Welcome to the Scene and Take podcast, a form of all things that inspire and motivate me as a filmmaker and content creator. I'm your humble host, Indio the Gaiarican. The following podcast contains strong language. According to Britannica.com, a documentary film is a motion picture that shapes and interprets factual material for purposes of education or entertainment. These films often fall within a category based on the material presented. From the historical and political to crime and sports, there are plenty of thought-provoking, gripping, and yes, even downright tragic stories being told. From the novice to the seasoned veteran filmmaker, documentaries are being shared to the masses like never before. With me today to explore the dynamic impact of documentaries is my friend and fellow Bronxite, David Simpson. Welcome to the podcast, my friend. Hello. (laughs) So, David, you and I have an immense appreciation for both narrative and documentary storytelling. But there's something about documentaries that stay with you for a bit longer, don't you think? Absolutely. Its connection to reality, obviously, is huge. And the idea that these things are happening in the world makes them very compelling. Yeah, I mean, I know from watching some documentaries that it's formulated even just a different way of thinking for me. And I will go through a couple examples of my favorites that I've had primarily within the last decade or so that have impacted me in in more than just, oh, I viewed it and wow, that was a pretty good documentary. There was just something about it that left an indelible impression on me, you know, to this day. And I know you have actually started working on putting a documentary project together. And that process, as you know, can be one that takes a lot to even hit record for the first time. All the preparation, the access to the the subject and the subject matter, the content. So talk a little bit about the project that you are trying to put together and what it is that you're hoping will come of it. Yeah. So I'm fairly new to the process of documentary. So this is the first project that I've endeavored on on my own. And I come at it from a sort of. Yeah. So I, I, I had a career in advertising for a while and I wanted to be more of a technician. And so I decided to pick up a camera and figure out how do I tell a story? In doing that, it's like, okay, what do I have access to? What stories can I tell? What's unique about me and my perspective that will allow me to tell a story that may not be known? And so my stepmother runs an agency for the developmentally disabled. They provide health services and care for those who have um, traumatic brain injuries or some kind of intellectual disability. And so she runs a number of, of houses, homes for these clients of hers. And they're wonderful people. I've spent a lot of time with them over the last years. And I wanted to take a snapshot of the lives of the women in particular in the agency who are the care workers who are doing most of the work are women of color. And I saw this interesting dynamic about individuals who are in society that are relegated to positions of non-value because they can't necessarily contribute to the, they're not considered productive individuals. And then also seeing women of color who are the most vulnerable people in our society. 
And so how that dynamic works and trying to create a story from that. So last summer, I spent several days there interviewing and chatting with folks. And so I'm working on how to develop that project. One of the biggest hurdles is like, okay, where is this going? I can interview people till the cows come home, but like, what's the intention of the project? And I ended up reading a book by Umberto Eco, which is his seminal writing about a thesis. And so it's actually intended for students to create their college level project to create their thesis. It's like a step-by-step guide on how to research, what is the intention of the thesis. And that actually sort of directed my focus a little bit more on what the intention of the documentary should be about. And I landed on this idea that like it should be a document that accounts historically of the existence of programs like Angels Unaware, which is the the agency that my stepmother runs, and the history around the care for the developmentally disabled in New York specifically. And the idea is like be very, very targeted, be very, very specific about what you're trying to convey so that others can utilize that material to further research. So essentially you're pushing forward or expanding the body of knowledge for this specific subsection of the world. So that that's kind of been my angle since reading that book. And so I've just been writing and trying to formulate the treatment and I'm sort of in that process right now. Do you find that in the process of trying to educate others about something specific that you have prior knowledge to because of your relationship to your stepmom and getting to know about the program, do you find that as the process has gone, you're continuing to learn about the specifics within the organization and what they're trying to do, their mission, but then you're also seeing those whole that need to get plugged, so to speak, with either funding or just challenges of having that clientele. And it runs the gamut of the degrees of how developmentally challenged they are, right? So those in itself have lasting effects on the workers because they work there for a period of time, but then they go home and they do care about what they're doing. And So that has kind of a lasting impression personally. So it's not just business all the time, right? Yeah, absolutely. What I found so far is that a lot of the folks that do do the care work there have like a family history of care work, like their mothers and their grandmothers were nurses. They worked in the healthcare profession or they at one point had to care for loved ones and they found this work as a result of like their history. And a lot of folks also do other types of care in the community outside of this job that's super, super intense, super hard, requires you to be available and ready to help others at a moment's notice. We have one woman who fosters newborns in addition to the job. And then we have others who run a weekly soup kitchen that is not associated to the agency. So wonderful stories about people who just are built to help folks. And it's, it's super interesting how that all happens. So I'm super taken by the folks there and their ability to commit to folks who are not their family members and love them like they're their family. Yeah, I mean, the story just sounds 
intriguing and I know that you'll do a fabulous job on it. And it's got a little personal flavor to it because of the fact that your stepmom runs uh, the program. And do you find that because of that, there is just a little more vested interest and that's why you chose this topic? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons is I want to create something that helps her in some way. I know that that's not necessarily journalistic, but that doesn't matter. This is something that I want to create because she's been doing so much good work for so long and hasn't gotten any wide recognition. And one of the benefits of it is possible funding for her agency. You know, folks will see this and they'll say, hey, we should give money to this agency. One of the issues that they are confronted with is that it's difficult for them to get additional funding to expand programs because state funding is so so limited. They would have to go to outside sources to get additional dollars to make programs better. And so this could be an avenue for fundraising, essentially. Right. So go into the private sector and trying to get stuff. Yeah. There have been documentaries that I'm sure you have watched that have kind of helped you formulize what you wanted to do for your own documentary as you're going forward. So let's talk about some of the documentaries that you've watched that have had that impact on you that have inspired you either stylistically, uh, the cinematography, just the storytelling of it. Let's run through some of your faves. Sure. In this exploration of documentary, because this is fairly new to me, and I have taken full advantage of the New York Public Library that has an amazing collection of films that you can get for free. Shout out to the NYPL. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I owe them some late fees. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> a lot. I think like you get really busy, you get like five DVDs at one time and you're like, I can't watch all these de- all these films. So I end up getting a lot of late fees. So they are super helpful. Um, I'm sure when you pay for it, they appreciate the, the donations. Yeah, I, I consider it a donation. Yeah. So I spent a bunch of time over the last like two years just like watching as much as possible. And I, I got a list of a couple things here. One recent film that I've seen is Kirsten Johnson's Camera Person from 2016. And so that documentary is about her career as a documentarian over the last 25 years. She's an NYU professor in the School of Journalism, and it is a beautiful film, first off, shows beautiful scenes of people and places all around the world. She's like a very well-regarded cinematographer, has done films like Citizen Four, Darfur Now, The Oath, won tons of awards. This film in particular is sort of like a impressionistic collage of images and thoughts about the process of filmmaking and the impact it has on filmmakers and the individuals that are being filmed or featured in the documentaries. And it it really gives you a very intimate perspective on what it's like to enter into someone's life to tell their story and how to do that with compassion and empathy and an open heart and with like the utmost respect for the lives of others. Really, really beautiful. You recommended Camera Person to me and I actually borrowed it from the library. I had to get it from the Mid-Manhattan Library. And the one thing that struck me was the fact that she showed not only her professional work, but a little bit about her personal life and that she has a mom that 
was going through about with uh, dementia, uh, yeah. dementia, right? And so she was just kind of, it's almost like home video for her, but being that she is a professional documentarian, she was documenting this part of her life as well. And many of the scenes she chose were those that impacted her on a deeper level as she was going out and doing these assignments. And what struck me the most were those moments that she couldn't hold herself back from being behind the camera because the situation was just so impactful to her. One in particular was the young boy in the Middle East who had been injured pretty badly in his face and blinded and just the conversation she was having with him and the young boy telling her what he can see and not see when you know he put his hand in one eye and the other and then him recounting how he saw his best friend dead on the ground and this this young kid I have a 13 year old so that hit me and I was like This is crazy. I I couldn't even imagine talking to a kid my son's age and having him recount this tragedy and then still having a smile and, you know, being happy to be there with her and counting his blessings and, and not even really wanting to think too hard about those tragic moments, but knowing and remembering them as part of his life so right. far. Yeah, and that, that scene's a super powerful. He's like recounting the story, and I think he's telling the story in his native language, and she still breaks down, breaks down and starts crying just because she can sense even beyond words, even beyond the specifics like she knows how hurt he is and that empathy translates so powerfully it's a great film and also like the dvd extras are also really great there's like roundtable discussions and there are a couple interviews with her and then there's an interview with her and her sound people that she's worked with a lot over the past and her producers and they talk about their dynamics how they enter into spaces and how they sort of take up positions of sort of like awareness and have a system for communicating without words like what's going on and who needs to be aware and aware of what because they are entering like very difficult situations war-torn areas and it's a really great film for sort of understanding how you should approach documentary also in life (laughs) i should approach a lot of things with care and empathy and consideration and on top of it it's really beautiful and also scary at times right because there were it was that one situation where they were being driven and they were pretty much going to be doing a drive-by of the the exterior of the prison right right. and then the driver saying i'm gonna just run in get some water get your shot so that we can cut out but then they got caught with the camera and then they were stopped and so the camera had to be put down on the lap so that tense scary moment real real moment of oh snap is something bad gonna happen to this journalist because she tried to get a drive-by shot of the exterior of the prison right exactly yeah and that piece in particular it's like you're entering a zone but you're also potentially putting others at risk by your presence she relates another story of the the hospital i forget how how she relates it essentially there's like an emergency with a young child and 
one of the nurses has to run from one ward to the next. And because the camera is there, she like stops running and waits for Kirsten. And she's like, no, you cannot run. You have an emergency. Like and, and so that dynamic of the fact that like she is a white woman in this prison and there's like a there's a very uh, a very clear power dynamic that she's not intending to happen, but it's just there as a result of bullshit that, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that we have to deal with. And so, yeah, the care that you have to take when you're in a situation and understanding like what the power dynamics are and being aware of the people that you could potentially impact by just your presence alone. I am super into things that are like nonlinear and I use the word impressionistic a lot. I was once told that I had, and I don't know whether whether this was a critique or a diss, but I was told that I had a kaleidoscopic intellect in that it's very fragmented, but also bright and colorful. <laughs> I would take that as a compliment. I think so. The artist in you and you often see colors a little brighter than others, you know? I, I, I definitely have been told that I pay attention to things that other people don't pay attention to. Right. And so I like long takes. I like the very meditative stuff. And so I'm into non-linearness and fragmentation of story. And so I just recently got introduced to Chris Marker, who's like a French director. And I haven't explored a ton of his films yet, but one in particular is uh, Saint Soleil. That was also sort of like a collage style meditation on memory and forgetting and the post-industrial world and the solitude that industrialization causes on like the modern human. And there's like imagery from like the plains of Africa and these very pastoral scenes of Scandinavia. And then that juxtaposed with Tokyo, the speed of movement of Tokyo and New York. And then there's like poetry and there's a woman who does a lot of the narration And it's very nonlinear, very sort of like fragmented and just very beautiful. And so I'm super into that. And Chris Marker is known for also combining a lot of techniques. He does a documentary, but then also will inject a fictional element into it that makes it super interesting. And so he does, he's sort of like a very experimental filmmaker and I'm into the work that he does. So that one's Sansole is is one that I'm super into. And then I saw this film, The Arbor by uh, Cleo Bernard and also not a very traditional documentary at all. It's about the life of this young playwright from the UK. And she was this brilliant playwright, but had like a very troubled past, lived in a very rough, they call them estates in the UK, sort of like projects almost. And it's about the life of this woman and her family and telling her story of becoming a playwright and coming from a rough background. The unique element of it is is that the director interviewed the daughter of Andrea Dunbar and over the course of two years and then took those interviews and had professional actors reenact the stories and while lip syncing the actual interview itself. So you've got these professional actors who are lip syncing the actual told story and then reenacting them, but also injecting this sort of like magical realism into the scenes and also just done really beautifully. And 
I'd never seen anything like that. Right. So, so it was it was more the style of it that really intrigued you to right. to this documentary. Yeah. Like you know, it definitely sounds unique in that taking the audio from an actual interview and having actors lip sync those, but creating a dramatization of that scene. Exactly. And then also taking it a step further and like making those scenes almost hyper real. And so you've got like the you, you think documentary is one thing and then you sort of like dramatize a particular part and then add this traditionally narrative film element with the professional actors and then you're also doing something very crazy visually to it. So I just like the idea of that of documentary not being this one specific thing and there is this sense that like documentaries are boring because they're capturing reality that there isn't a way of injecting this a, a certain level of emotion that it, it can invoke one documentary that I remember watching and kind of angered me a little bit because of what I was learning from it was a documentary called The Bleeding Edge. It was a couple years ago, I think 2018. And it was an investigation on the medical device industry and the crimes of the big businesses uh, in the medical device field, because at the expense of a lot of the patients who weren't told of the high risks they were going into, having these things implanted in them, then like this deniability of the fact that there's maybe a high, there's always a high risk of things or whatever, but they pretty much know that it's going to be hurtful and there's no accountability. All the patients that are going through massive amounts of pain and suffering and having to go in and procedure after procedure after the procedure to get the pain to go away, the medical device industry are just throwing their hands up and saying, hey, well, you know, it's not our fault, but they're known to have these defects and have these issues. One in particular, I remember involved an actual doctor who got a hip replacement and he used a cobalt joint and the cobalt was basically seeping into the system and cobalt will make a human like kind of go crazy. Yeah. And so his <clears throat> wife found him in a hotel room, like scratching at the ceiling, the walls and everything like that. And she was flabbergasted, like what's happening to him? And it ended up being that he was having cobalt poisoning wow. and going like literally crazy. So he became an advocate of not utilizing this cobalt hip joint. And even with his own evidence, he went and he found the evidence. He talked to people that he had put that same device into right. and, and talked to them about it and got all of this data, submitted it to the manufacturers. And they just like threw their hands up and like, well, you know, you're. Science. Yeah. In the name of science. Yeah. It, it, it kind of angered me a little bit that this goes on. And I'm sure the filmmakers wanted that kind of reaction for people so that they can talk about it and do something about it. And it was one of those documentaries that I had to sit back and say, you know, there's a lot going on that people are just not aware about and they need to be. And to this day, it's, it's like I'm asking 
family members or whatever, if they're having a procedure, like, what what are you doing? Oh, did you ask them where is it coming from or whatever the case may be? Just ask questions and be a little more involved in the in the matter because it is your body and you do have control of your own body. Yeah. Um, yeah so another documentary that I think has impacted us as a society and those who have watched it and kind of knew what was happening, but then the way it was presented opened people's eyes once again was 13th with Ava DuVernay's uh, documentary. It highlights the continued systemic injustices derived from the 13th Amendment, which has led to the disproportionate incarceration of black people. And it was something that we continue to live in as a society, and we just haven't been able to figure out the proper solution to it. And it's going to be something that if we don't handle our business and fix this, it's going to get worse. And stylistically, her style of cinematography, the way that she sat down with some of the interviewees, the professionals in the industry, the activists, very beautifully shot. And that's one that inspired me in terms of the cinematography side of things. But just the storytelling as well. She kept it compelling and tried to keep it as balanced as possible without just kind of driving the one bad point all the time. But seeing how this is adversely affecting so many people, there's just no there's no other way to look at it. Yeah, that film was really great. Also very beautifully shot. And thankfully, a lot of people saw it. There are I mean, the prison industrial complex in the U.S. is insane and is also directly in proportion to a country's militarization. So we have the United States has the most prisoners of any nation, followed by Russia, followed by China. And these are all the largest weapons manufacturers in the world. And so there is a direct correlation. Your country makes guns and you criminalize people the most. And that's just a direct issue that people really don't talk about. Current administration, like Trump is constantly talking about the helicopters and the bombs and the tanks that he's selling because he's a salesman. He's like a used car salesman hawking wares from Raytheon and Lockheed Martin. And no one is talking about that. No one is talking about moving the U.S. away from being the largest supplier of weapons that kill humans in the world. None of the candidates are talking about that stuff on, on either side. And like not seeing that that is the largest moral and ethical issue that's facing us because yeah. it makes us the most money. Right. And that's why we're so rich. Yeah. And that's why people come to this country because of that opportunity, because we make weapons of war. And then at the same time, backing out from climate change and the Paris Accords, right. anything that deals with having to improve the world as a whole. It's one of those things where documentaries can be eye opening. They can be sometimes a little lopsided when you think about some of the Michael Moore type of <laughs> documentaries where he's really coming in fast and hard against something. But sometimes you want to have the ability to keep that conversation going only because if you don't, it gets swept under the rug and people forget about it and it's on to the next thing. Right now we have this global crisis that our government is just totally 
denying that it's even there and unfortunately is going to create some havoc and it has in the stock market so we'll see what what that documentary is going to look like (laughs) (laughs) so what do you think about the fact that now there's actually this push of reboots of for us those classic 90s movies that we remember growing up. In addition to Candyman, there's going to be another Child's Play. There's going to be another Pet Cemetery. Nice. <laughs> and they're even doing a second uh, Zombieland, which was not too long ago. Uh, I think it was 2009. So, yeah, the whole reboot situation going on. And it's always been out there. But the execution, everybody always says that the originals never get outdone. I mean, I'm super okay with reboots. I don't have a problem with them necessarily. I mean, I, I probably haven't like watched very many of them, but it's, you know, it's a function of it's specifically my generation being in positions of executive control right. and yeah. saying, hey, this is a thing that I enjoyed when I was a kid. So yeah. I'm sure others will enjoy it. Right. So, I mean, at this point, Candyman, the originally was released in 1992. So I mean, why not? Yeah, I mean, mythology and story happens in cycles and like every generation wants to retell stories. And so I think it's just a function of that. I mean, you know, people get super, super like weird about, oh, there's no originality, blah, blah, blah. But like I one thing there is a Paul Rand. He is a famous designer Mm -hmm. and he's got a quote that says, don't be original, just be good. Right. As a way of like, you can remake a classic. You just have to do it well, and then and it will be received well. And so that's how I approach things. Especially that it helps to remind yourself of that in your creative process. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You just have to be a student of the art and execute well. And the thing that you do will be good. It might not be well received, but like it will have merits that people can appreciate well said well said well it's about time we're gonna jump into what i call the speed ramp so david i'm gonna ask you a series of rapid fire questions just respond with the first thing that pops into your mind all right word all right a memorable event you wish you were able to experience firsthand oh my god i don't know the moon landing Hmm. okay (laughs) the moon landing July 20, 1969. Yeah. All right. Your favorite Bronx-centric movie? Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I'm embarrassed to say that I can't think of one. that Other than a Bronx tale? Other than a Bronx tale. <laughs> which I don't think I saw. Oh, really? I don't think I saw. Oh, one, wow. So. You're, you're uh, one of the minorities on that. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I my, there's so many gaps in my yeah. like, knowledge of popular <laughs> culture. Yeah. How about the most recent one that was in your neighborhood? Oh, the Joker. <laughs> the oh, Joker. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. Right, right, Which, right. you know, now there's a, a Google commercial, like a Google Maps commercial. Yeah. And the first thing they, they do is put in... Joker stairs? Joker stairs. Oh, <laughs> fuck. I gotta look at <laughs> So, it, yeah, it's like all this this whole uh, thing about places that uh, movies have taken place. Oh so they show the, the house from Friday. And stuff, yeah. But the first one is the Joker stairs. And it's like Shakespeare yeah. Avenue. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, is your name? Yeah, that's wild. So context, I live on that block, essentially. Yeah. Um, I live on Woody Crest, which is like one street over. Oh, right. And ever since that movie premiered, there are just 
people walking up and down those stairs taking photos right. every single day. Every day. Any yeah. day that it's not raining, right. people are out there. Even yeah. today, this morning, 30 degrees. Yeah. I'm sure it's their first time ever coming to the Bronx. Right. Other than like a Yankee game. Yeah. It's wild. It's yeah. wild. Which I, I is a gift and yet. a curse. I don't mind it. Right. Some some in the neighborhood have taken offense to it. You know, everything with gentrification yeah. happening in certain parts of the South Bronx. The thing that I that I find most offensive and this happened recently, is that they cleaned the stairs. They fixed up all of the holes and they patched up they patched up the crumbling cement. Right. And that power, should have been done a long and time. power washed the stairs wow. of all the graffiti yeah. in the last few weeks. And that now I'm pissed. Right. Now I'm pissed because like I've been complaining right. about the community has been complaining about it and nothing has been done. And and now right. that a movie features it and, and white folks and Brazilian tourists and Chinese tourists from around the world. World right. are checking it out and then they decide to clean up right. those, those yeah. stairs. Yeah. Right? Of course. Of course. So <sighs> anyway, all right. So that's why back to the speed ramp. A location you would love to explore and film. A location I would love to explore and film. I think we went into slow motion. We're no longer speed ramping here. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> My mind is not built for speed. <laughs> we'll, we'll switch it up to the slow-mo. Yeah. High frame rates. Oh man, there is like I want to say, and I forget the name of it. Maybe I'll look it up soon. Oh man, hold on a second. I don't know what the name of it is now. Anyways, there's this like crazy, I think it like was torn down in the 80s or something. That there's like this huge housing development in, I want to say it was outside of Hong Kong. That was the inspiration for a lot of Blade Runner. Okay. And it was this dilapidated housing block that just became this nest of interwoven communities and power lines. And it was just a very dystopic future slum that had been condemned for years and years, but there were like thousands of people living there. Right. And it had its own like security force mm. of like, you know, people who, who live there. Within that the community. Yeah. yeah. And I just always like saw pictures of that place. And right. I was like, oh my God, that must have been the most intense experience and to be able to go back in time and, and see that right. would have been awesome. And now I can't remember the name of it. So. Speaking of going back in time, a historical figure, dead or alive, you would like to have a sit-down interview with? So recently I was introduced to a very famous director that I didn't know about, Andre Tar Tarkovsky. And I've just been really fascinated with his films of recent. He directed Solaris, Stalker, The Mirror, Andrei Rublev, and he's a philosopher poet that creates created these beautiful films. I think he did, I think it was like seven or eight feature films in his career. And he has a very poetic stance on like how to look at life. And I just, I, I would always wanted to, to talk to him. Yeah. Nice. Tarkovsky. Awesome. Well, David, thank you for stopping by my friend. It's been a pleasure to have you chat about documentaries and the Bronx a little bit as well. We are. are even both though I didn't Bronx know sites. any <laughs> know any films from the Bronx. <laughs> any Wait, films? Let, what, what are some other films that I should know? <laughs> uh, that <laughs> that she, they, well, 
In terms of Bronx-centric, there's some that have more degrees of time frame in, sure, in, in the Bronx. you know, in the Bronx. But a lot of people take the movie The Warriors as being kind of a Bronx film, too, because of the fact that the whole meeting took place in the Bronx. Okay. And you have related there as well, The Wanderers, which I remember Richard Price's The Wanderers. There's a great iconic scene of the Fordham Road Army Recruitment Center, Mm. and it's still there. So that's that's one. And so the concourse and Lowe's Paradise and the old school Valentine Theater and Valentine. We have a Bronx Tale, obviously. You have some of the Summer of Sam that took place a little bit in the Bronx as well. So there's there's a few out there. Waiting for Cardi B's feature. (laughs) Cardi B's feature. (laughs) All right, cool. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode. I do hope you will come back to listen to us again. The Scene and Take podcast is sponsored by Guy Rican Productions, edited by yours truly, Harry Indio Rampkishin, and music provided by Artlist.io. Be sure to follow and subscribe on your preferred podcast listening platform. Hit that heart button and leave a comment. Until the next one, make it a great day. Peace. Peace.